We are in Song of Solomon. This is our fifth week in the Song of Solomon. The first four weeks have been primarily aimed at uh, single people and dating relationships as that was kind of the place in Solomon and his bride's relationship that we, that we were talking about. Um, they got married last week. We looked at the wedding and the wedding night, and it was fantastic. Uh, and now we move into the marriage. And so uh, the married people who have gotten kind of a free pass for the first four weeks are about to get hammered for the next four, um, and uh, single people can take a deep breath uh, for a little while. Um, but Statistically speaking, 95% or so of you will be married someday, and so you should probably pay attention to what's going on in their marriage. So, Song of Solomon, chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 2, and it becomes very clear very quickly that the honeymoon is over. We are uh, probably, let's see, for the sake of their marriage, let's say months uh, into the marriage, and, uh, and, and things are always already starting to go sideways. So chapter 5, verse 2. She's speaking. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. And commentators have debated a little bit whether this whole thing really happened, and she was sleeping but woke up, was kind of that in, in that in and out stage where you have crazy dreams, um, and got woken up by the knock at the door, or if this whole thing was a dream. And so uh, I was trying to figure out this week which way we wanted to go, and what I realized is it doesn't really matter whether this is a dream or this is real. Uh, because when he gets right down to it, it is poetry either way. So either this is a, a real story told poetically, or it is a real dream told poetically. Either way, it's not uh, intended to be told as narrative. And so um, what we can glean from it is true, whether this was dream or reality. So we'll call it a real dream. Okay. She says, a sound, my beloved is knocking. And he says, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. So it's clearly late at night, and he is coming to her bedroom. Um, in, in these days, especially in more wealthy homes, uh, it was not uncommon for a husband and a wife to have separate bedrooms. Okay? Uh, it doesn't make any sense to me either, but, but that's what they did. So Solomon is coming to his bride's bedroom late at night with clearly, uh, let's say, intimacy on his mind, right? It becomes clear throughout the rest of the passage that he came to her with uh, intentions, desires to be intimate with her. And, and he is pulling out all the stops, right? My love, my dove, my sister, and that was a good thing, uh, my, my perfect one, right? Like, I mean, he's going, baby girl, hey, I'm here, girl, baby, hey. Uh, I, I mean, he is coming to her in, in the best way. He's conjuring up everything he, he, can, he can think of uh, to make this a romantic moment. Now, we don't know the context of this uh, because it just doesn't tell us, which w- would be really helpful if we did, because what we, don't, what we do know is he's coming home late at night, right? Um, he's coming home with sexual intentions. What we don't know is, did she expect him to come home late at night, right? Does he, did he call and say, babe, I'm a king. I'm dealing with these Gergeshites. They're killing me. Uh, I got to stay up late and deal with them, right? And so I'll, I'll be home late. Maybe he did. Maybe he said, hey, I'll be home for dinner, five o'clock, I'll be there. She cooked this nice dinner, goose, the whole deal, a side of camel, and, uh, and she was sitting there at their giant table uh, with all the servants kind of nervous, and, the whole, and he never shows, right? 
And so she goes to bed angry, uh, feeling betrayed, feeling like she's been lied to. We, we don't know. We don't know. Uh, because the next part of the story would have a little bit different, uh, little, little different part to it if we knew that, that detail. And so since we don't know that detail, we have to assume that the Scripture is trying to teach us something that is true regardless of context. And I think that's exactly what it's doing. Okay, So verse 3. She says, I had put off my garment, how could I put it on? I had bathed my feet, how could I soil them? So Solomon comes to his bride late at night, puts on all the charm, seems pretty romantic, seems like he's taken the time to love her, my baby girl, love, dove, the whole deal. And she goes, I don't want to get up. I, I I just took my garments off, how could I put them on? Right, and she's using that as an excuse, and he's thinking, great, that skips a step. That was happening anyway. We're good, right? She says, my, my feet, I, I cleaned them. How could I soil them again, right? She has to get up out of bed and walk across uh, the castle floors, which, I mean, they're not camping. How dirty could they be, right? Uh, she has to walk around. And so he, he's going, listen, I'm not here for your feet. It's cool. They can be dirty. I don't even care. Uh, this is, these are just lame excuses, very, very, very lame excuses, okay? And so he comes to her fairly romantically, comes to her, knocks on the door, wants to be with his bride, is, is pursuing her uh, sexually, pursuing her romantically, and she shuts him down, okay? This, regardless of the context, is fairly selfish, fairly lazy, kind of apathetic, She certainly is taking for granted the fact that her husband is pursuing her romantically. He could have shown up in a lot worse ways and just kind of knocked on the door and be like, hey, I'm here, you ready? Right, like that could have been a way, a bad way, um, for him to have approached the situation, but he didn't. He led with compliments, told her how much uh, she meant to him, how much he loved her, and, and she just kind of made excuses. So she responds badly to his advances, right? Now, does she have any obligation to to be intimate with her husband? No, not really. Not really. She she doesn't have to welcome that every single time. There's no absolutely no obligation that she has to always want to be intimate with her husband every time he wants to. Now, sorry guys. I know you were hoping I was going to pull out a verse there, but um, <laughs> But that's not, that's not there, okay? And so she doesn't have an obligation, but she has an obligation to love her husband and to respond to him well and to honor him, right? So ladies, I, I, have, to, I have to give you a hint here that, that some of you who have been married longer than I have probably have figured out by now. Men have very fragile sexual egos, right? They're very fragile. So when your husband opens up and goes, hey, how are you doing tonight? What do you think? Right? Uh, it's when his voice goes up like that, that <laughs> he's kind of putting himself out there. And when you just smash him down with some lame excuse like, oh, um, my feet are dirty? Right? Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to. Um, that crushes him. Now, your husband right now is going, no, no, that ain't me. I'm cool. I, whatever. I can take it. No. No, he can't, right? And, and the more he protests, the more fragile he is, right? Okay, there's a range, fragile to fragile, okay? He is fragile. And so 
So she does not handle this particularly well. She has a moment of selfishness. She's kind of lazy. She's kind of after. She could, I tell you what, if this was a week after they got married, she would have hopped out of bed, crawled through crocodiles to get to that door. I don't know what the crocodiles are doing in her room either. But she would have done that to get to the door, to love her husband, to please her husband, to be with him. So we've got kind of the waning excitement of the relationship now. Some of you are dating and going, no, baby, that's not us. That'll never happen to us. It will. It already has, probably, right, to some degree. Um, And so that will happen to every single one of you. There's no question. The 95% of you who are going to get married will experience the end of the honeymoon period and the beginning of the disillusionment period, right? When you wake up, you roll over, and the crusty things are not cute anymore. And it's not like, oh, it's so crusty. It's, oh, is that, it's getting bigger, right? Like, that's the moment, okay? And so this is called, see, all the single people are like, no, I'm not crusty. You're crusty, okay? She doesn't handle it well. Verse four, my beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. So Solomon chooses not to hear her excuses and goes to the latch and is kind of shaking it, right? Like he would like to come in. Um, And and, and he's kind of, are we sure? And uh, something about that, something about him continuing to pursue her gives her a change of heart. It says that her heart was thrilled within her. So she went from apathy to being excited that he continues to pursue. I rose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. Now, there's some question as to who, who put the myrrh on, on the handle, right? Did, uh, did she, after she got out of bed, go to her myrrh dresser and, and, and pull it? That's not like a merman. Oh, that's like... <laughs> Bunny trails. Bunny trails. Uh, she, she, we don't know if she put on the myrrh or if he had actually gone to his room first, taken a shower, gotten cleaned up, put on a little myrrh, and then showed up because this myrrh is a spice that was somewhat of an aphrodisiac and made you smell better. You'd want it to be a part of a heightened sexual experience. So we don't know if she went to the dresser to get some and it took her extra long or if he left it. It kind of doesn't matter. The point is this was meant to be a sexual experience. Verse 6, I opened to my beloved but my beloved had turned and gone. Okay, so let's back this up a little bit. Solomon comes home late, pursues his wife. All all that we know for sure is that he came home late and then pursued his wife relatively romantically, right? My love, my sister, my dove, my perfect one. That's a pretty good start, okay? So he pursues her romantically, And then she responds apathetically, kind of selfishly, drags her feet, not really into it. Then she has a change of heart. She goes to the door, and Solomon has already run away like a baby, okay? So his fragile ego was was broken in this moment, was damaged, and his response was to run away. Not to deal with it, not to continue to pursue her, not to just go, hey, we don't, you know, we don't have to be intimate, but can I still come in and just be with you? Can we spend some time? I haven't seen you all day. He doesn't do any of those things. He responds badly by running away from the situation, frustrated, angry, whatever, whatever the case may be. Okay? Now, 
We have a situation here where both the bride and the groom, the husband and the wife, respond badly. Okay? In marriage, and in any relationship, but especially in marriage, especially heightened in marriage, all of us control one thing. No, no matter what the situation, no matter what's going on, no matter the circumstances, no matter what she said, no matter what he did, we all control one thing, our response. We always control our own response. And it is usually that first response in this kind of a situation that dictates if this, if this is gonna go good or it's gonna go bad. So he comes to her, her response is bad. She's apathetic, she's lazy, she's slow. She responds badly. He has the choice to make to respond rightly even to her bad response. He can respond rightly and be understanding and go, hey, you know what, I know it's late, I, I should have come home early, um, that's fine if, if you don't wanna be intimate, I understand, um, have a good night, I'm gonna go to my room, or, um, or he could have sensed that there was something wrong in the relationship and just plopped himself down right on the door and said, okay, I'm not leaving until we can at least talk. Um, he could have handled this better. He could have handled this well. He had the choice to make to respond well or to not respond well. And he chose to run away like a little baby. That's not responding well. That's not dealing with the problem, okay? So in every fight that, that happens in your marriage, every single fight is your fault. That's what I want you to walk away with today. This is gonna be a very uplifting message. I want, to walk, want you to walk away knowing that every single fight, every single full-fledged fight that happens is your fault. You had an opportunity as the husband to respond right. You had an opportunity as the wife to respond right, respond with grace, respond with mercy, respond in a way that could have made the situation better. But you didn't. Something happened and the, the fault is yours. Okay. Now, we are not used to being told that, but it's true and we'll see it here as the passage continues to unfold. She says, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. And she says, my soul failed me when he spoke. My soul failed me when he spoke. This is probably the most theological statement in the whole book. That she says, when he spoke, and the only time we know that he spoke was, was there at the very beginning, in verse two, when he said, my love, my dove, my sister, my perfect one, and wanted to be with her, that's the only time we know he spoke. And she says, my soul failed me. My, this word is my innermost being, the, the truest, most central part of me failed to respond to my husband the right way. And she owns it. Very, very maturely, very responsibly, in a very godly way, she owns that she made a mistake. And she says it out loud, my soul failed me. When I needed it to help me choose the right response, it failed me and I chose the wrong response. Okay? So she says a very true and a very theological thing. And a thing that, that points backwards to, um, actually points backwards to a very important date, right? And I, I want to give you actually two dates because here's the thing about this story. This is not an Old Testament story, right? There are some stories that you just go, that's crazy, that's an Old Testament story. Those are the kind of stories that only exist in the Old Testament. Crazy response, crazy things, bears, mauling children, I mean, just crazy stuff, right? Those are the Old Testament stories. 
there are some stories you go, ah, that's a Bible story. I get that's an Old Testament story, it's a New Testament story. This is not an Old Testament story. This is not a Bible story. This is a story that plays out every single day in houses across our city. This is a story that has played out in houses across our church today, right? So if this has happened to you today, raise your hand. No, I'm just kidding. Um, This has happened. I I guarantee you this has happened today to many of the married couples in our church that are sitting in this room. Somebody says something, the other person responds, takes it the wrong way, responds badly, it elevates the situation, the other spouse responds even worse, and it just, ah, and nuclear explosion, okay? This happens all the time. And it's got its root in in what I think is two dates, okay? The first date we're going to call, because I don't want to get into an argument, the first date is Genesis 3, okay? Genesis 3, as we hopefully well know by now, if you've been uh, with us here at Praxis for any amount of time, you've heard of Genesis 3. Um, Genesis is the third book in your Bible. Genesis 1 and 2, God made everything in the universe perfect. Genesis 3, things go badly, right? Adam and Eve eat the fruit, Sin enters the world, rebellion enters the world. We inherit a propensity towards rebellion. We inherit a propensity uh, towards selfishness, towards self-centeredness. All of a sudden, in that moment, we become the center of our own universe, right? That happens in our hearts, or as she says, that happens in our souls in Genesis 3. And ever since then, that has been the case. We see Romans chapter 3, where uh, Paul says, no one seeks God, no one understands. Ever since Genesis 3, that's been the case. We have sought our own glory, we have sought our own well-being, we've sought our own luxury, right? This is Genesis 3. The second date I have for you didn't affect Solomon and his bride, but it did affect us. And that date is 1637. Most historians point back to 1637 as the beginning of the Enlightenment, right? Um, Rene Descartes, a French philosopher, wrote a book called Discourse on the Method, and a lot of historians look back on that publication as really what kicked off uh, this Enlightenment period. If you uh, were asleep in in history class, um, the Enlightenment was a movement in philosophy um, that tended to elevate human reason, um, elevated the human, uh, human person and science as the apex uh, of our existence. And when it elevated it, it simultaneously uh, degraded divine revelation and, and kind of the mystical side of, of the supernatural and these kinds of things. Now, um, the Enlightenment has taken an absolute beating um, from pastors over the last 25 years. It's become kind of cool to bang on the Enlightenment. Um, there were certainly some very, very good things um, that came out of the Enlightenment, and there's no question we got away from some kind of mysticism that was probably not super helpful. Um, it, it pushed forward scientific advancement and some really good things. But one of the real negative things that came out of the Enlightenment that has its roots in Genesis 3, and we see here in Song of Solomon, and we see here in our congregation every single week, is this elevation of the human person, the human will, the human desire above all things. And as that human will has been elevated and divine revelation, God himself has been lowered to the point that we now have essentially culturally and philosophically codified what began in Genesis chapter 3. Here's what I mean by that. 
what was born in the hearts of humanity in Genesis chapter three, this tendency towards rebellion, this tendency towards um, selfishness, was then made culturally normal as a, as a result of the Enlightenment. It was, it was thought to be the apex of, of, of all of our strivings um, to liberate humanity from all authority. Right? So much of our country, Benjamin Franklin in particular, was heavily influenced by the Enlightenment. Most of our founding fathers were, which is why we see things like um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are heavily Enlightenment ideas that each human should have the ability with no shackles, no cultural shackles, no authority, no, nothing around it to take away from its ability to pursue its greatest good and its greatest comfort. Okay, So what we essentially did was make it culturally acceptable to be selfish, to make it culturally acceptable um, to, uh, to pursue our own good above all other good, to stand outside of authority, to push off anyone or any institution that would try to put any shackles on us to be authority in our lives. We rebel against that um, by nature and also now by culture. Okay, so we see this all over the place. We see it in somewhat benign ways, like um, slogans telling us to be all that we can be. Slogans that tell us to have it your way right away at Burger King, right? Um, we listen to hamburgers and what they tell us about our lives. This is a, this is a product of the Enlightenment, okay? Um, this we see over and over and over in relationships, and, and I have seen it in particular in the last five weeks. As we have gone through this, this sermon series, I have had um, a number of emails and questions, phone calls, uh, Facebook messages, which I generally don't answer, um, and, and people coming down front to ask us questions um, related to this sermon series. And um, what has spoken to me most clearly um, is the nature of those questions, and really the consistent nature of those questions, that over and over and over and over and over, we have had questions that have been somewhere along the lines of, um, how far can I go? What, what are my limitations? What can I get away with? Um, if, I'm, if I'm in marriage, um, what can I force my wife to do? What can I expect my husband to have to do if I'm single? Um, what can I get away with in this relationship? What are the edges um, of, of my behavior is according to God? And now there's a range there everywhere from um, what, what, what can I get away with to where God's not angry with me all the way to what can I get away with to where God doesn't kill me immediately, okay? And so there is a range. Um, the general tenor, though, has been, if I can state it in a different way, how far away from God can I get before there are consequences I'm not comfortable with? That's, that's been the general tenor of these conversations and these questions that I've received. How far away from God can I get before the consequences outweigh the benefits? I have yet to have a single person, a single person yet over the last five weeks say to me, how can I make my prayer life with my wife better? How can I, Pastor Justin, I need your help. How can I serve and love my wife more sacrificially? How, 
Um, How can I, as a single person, um, prepare myself and my character better to be able to attract a godly husband or a godly wife? How can I, as a single man, um, really learn how to treat single women like sisters? That has not happened a single time. And if you do it now, it's too late. It doesn't count. It's concerning to me. It's concerning to me that essentially our line of thinking is we know that there are going to be consequences to our rebellion. And the question is, what is that line where the consequences outweigh the benefits? Okay. So the, the question has not been how can I draw closer to God in the midst of all these issues of sexuality, but how far away from God can I get before it gets bad? That, that tells me that Genesis 3 is still working on our hearts. That tells me um, that 1637 is still working on our hearts and working in our culture. That, that's the first part. The second part is that I've learned that people, when they ask those questions, are not actually looking for biblical truth. They are looking for affirmation. Okay? And so when people come to me and say, hey, this is my situation, is this Okay. And I say, well, no, biblically, that would be outside the bounds of what God wants and what God's vision for sexuality is. And the response, which you would expect, would be repentance, regret, going, okay, you know what? I appreciate your honesty there. I appreciate where God speaks there. And I want to repent for times that I've gone outside of that and really want to pursue godliness. That has not been the response. Almost universally, the response has been anger, indignation that I would dare tell them that something in their life was not good. So what, what that tells me is that question was not born out of a sincere desire to follow God. That question was born out of a desire for me, someone that they look to as an authority, to affirm and approve of their desired lifestyle. Okay, and so I, I got an email this week a particularly angry email, which are always fun. And, uh, and the, the woman who was writing to me was, was angry about this Song of Solomon series, though she was not specific about what parts of it she was angry. Um, she had some suggestions of what I could have preached um, instead of Song of Solomon. Um, but then she had the courage to not sign her name at the bottom. And so what I can only assume is I said something over the last several weeks that went against her desired lifestyle. That, that I said something was good that she thought was bad, or that I said something was bad, the Bible said something was bad, that she wanted to continue to do. And so instead of addressing the issue, she just kind of attacked my character and those kinds of fun things. What's interesting is, over the last five weeks, I have not had a single person come to me and go, hey, I appreciated the message. Um, I'm, I'm struggling with this verse. I don't know if I agree with your interpretation of this verse. None of the pushback that I've received, none of the complaints that I've received, none, none, none of the angry emails have tried to address the scriptures but have either tried to simply um, kind of affirm their choices and make um, excuses, qualifiers for their choices, or to convince me that their situation was unique. 
that the Bible was probably true for most scenarios, um, but the way they understand the Bible for their scenario was different, and it allowed them to do this thing that they wanted to do. Ironically, most of the young men who came to me with these issues had hermeneutics that allowed the scriptures to allow them to be naked with their girlfriend. It was weird, right? Just a real consistent naked girlfriend hermeneutic, okay? And so um, th- this, is, this is problematic. And so um, my, my understanding of the text, my understanding of our culture, my understanding of history, and now my understanding as a result of pushback and emails and conversations and questions that I have had is the bride could not be more right when she says, my soul has failed me. My soul has failed me. That at the root of this is selfish sin. At at the root of the problems in our marriages is selfish sin. It's not circumstances. It's not he's mean or, or she's a nag or it's none of that. It's you are being selfishly sinful sinfully selfish, whichever way. It's true either way. Okay. And so what we generally do not hear in our culture is, it's your fault. I will, and I know I'm not known for shooting straight, but I want to take this moment and, and stop beating around the bush and just be really clear. It's always your fault. It's always your fault. Okay. In, in, in a relationship where there is an argument and that argument escalates a situation similar to what we have here. Was it Solomon's fault? Yes, he ran away like a baby. Was it the bride's fault? Yes, she didn't respond well to her husband. It's both of their faults. She owns it. She is at least mature enough and godly enough to own it and say, my soul failed me when he spoke. She goes out to look for him. She says, I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. Sometimes it's as important to see what is not in a text as it is to see what is in a text. What we see is a godly woman pursuing reconciliation with her husband. This is a really good thing. She is being, I want to be really clear about this. She is being mature and she is being godly. What we do not see in this passage is that Solomon, as the husband, should be pursuing reconciliation with his wife. It is always, gentlemen, our responsibility to lead with grace, to lead with mercy, to lead with strength, and to lead towards reconciliation. It is on us to lead in our family when there is a fight towards restoration and reconciliation. That is our responsibility. He failed, she picked up where he failed. This should never have happened. She runs out and gets beat by the watchman. That never should have happened because Solomon should have led. The scriptures tell us that in a marriage that the husbands are like Jesus and that the wives are like the church, the bride of Christ. Always throughout the scriptures, God pursues, Christ pursues, therefore the husband should pursue. 
It is not the church that initially pursues God. Romans 3 says no one seeks God, no one understands. God first pursues us. We respond to God. Gentlemen, we have been given the responsibility to pursue love, to pursue reconciliation, to pursue restoration in our marriages when that is broken. It's on us. Solomon failed the same way that Adam failed in the garden. In Genesis 3, it says that Eve took the fruit and ate of it and gave some to Adam who was with her. Adam abdicated his responsibility in the garden and husbands have been abdicating their responsibility ever since. He should have, Adam should have, while standing next to his wife, stepped in front, taken the fruit out of the serpent's tail, and then, and then strangled the serpent unto death. That's what should have happened. Adam didn't protect his wife. He didn't protect his family. He didn't live up to what God had told him to do to cultivate, to protect the garden. He failed. He abdicated his responsibility. Solomon does it many years after, and husbands have been doing it over and over and over and over and over and over up until today. We have been given the responsibility to lead. Do not bear that burden lightly. Do not give up that responsibility to your wife. It's not her job. You should not burden her with a job that is yours. Husbands, be strong. Be responsible for your family. Protect them. Love them with mercy, with grace, with tenderness, and with love. Protect your family. Lead them to reconciliation. Be the first to go to your wife and repent. Be the first to go to your wife to seek openness, that vulnerability that it takes to actually see wholeness come back to the relationship. It's on us. Same way Christ came to his church, husbands, go to your wives. Solomon blows it, and his wife ends up running through the streets in the middle of the night. Whether it happened in real life or in a dream, it does not matter. The watchman found me, verse 7, as they went about in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. So she can't find Solomon. She calls her friends. I need help. Come help me find my husband. Verse 9. The others, her friends say, what is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? They basically go, why should we help you? He ran out on you. What's the big deal? Why is he so great? Why should we go find him? She responds, verse 10 through 16. It's a monologue where she talks about him very physically. She says, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. Those are crazy eyes. I don't understand what's going on there. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. I, I, don't, I don't understand that. 
His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choices the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. She describes him. She says he's really good looking. He works out, right? Rods of iron like arms. He, he even does squats, right? Says that his legs are like alabaster columns, right? That's big. Uh, they're hairy because they're manly. And, uh, and so these are, this is a good manly man. And so apparently... Um, she convinced her friends. They say, where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? So they're convinced. They think he might be kind of hot and they want to see him, okay? And so they go, all right, let's go find this very attractive hairy man. Um, Verse two, this is where it gets a little weird. She says, my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. Um, If you were here last week, you will remember that this language of garden grazing amongst the lilies means what? I'll say it. They're having sex. That's what this means. Okay, they've reconciled, um, and, and they are now back in uh, their bedroom or whatever room they could find, and they are, they are making up. Okay, we'll just leave it there. Here's what's missing. The moment in between the, the, her running through the streets and them having sex, that doesn't turn into that, right? At least not in real life. In the movies, that may happen. What we're missing is the reconciliation, what we're missing is the slow motion moment where they see each other across the alley and they you know, kind of do this and she's fighting off the watchman and then fighting off her friends who think he's hot. And, you know, and then they, they embrace and she says, I'm so sorry, I denied you. And he says, no, I was being a baby, I shouldn't have run. She goes, yeah, you were kind of a baby. And then they hug and then they kiss and then they find the nearest room. And then six, two, and three, okay? So what we're missing is the reconciliation which is ironic because I feel like that's what's missing from most marriages in our, in our city and in our culture. The reconciliation. We do fighting pretty well, and then we do the post-reconciliation as a result of ignoring the fight, not dealing with the fight, not having the courage to repent, not having the godliness or the character to actually deal with the problem. We'll just go on and pretend the problem never happened. We'll we'll pretend those issues aren't still there, but our hearts will grow more and more and more bitter towards one another. Because he deserves an apology. She thinks he should apologize to him, but he's waiting for her to apologize. They both need to apologize. They both need to repent, and he needs to lead it. But the reconciliation that is missing, at least in the text here, is largely missing from our relationships, which is why most relationships end in divorce. If there's no way to reconcile, then bitterness just grows, anger just grows, and takes root until there's no reason to be together anymore. So this is why a relationship that is not centered on the gospel will never work. Because without it, we do not have a framework for reconciliation. 
The gospel provides a framework for reconciliation that we do not find in our culture. Our culture says it's not your fault. It's never your fault. You should have the right to do whatever it is that most pleases you, and if that violates the desires of your spouse, that's on them. You should be free from the shackles of some social contract like marriage to do whatever you want to do. And if you do something wrong, it's still not your fault. It's circumstances' fault. It's the scenario. It's your parents. It's how you grew up. It's just he doesn't understand you. Whatever it is. And I'm telling you, without the gospel as a framework for reconciliation, there will be no reconciliation, which will result in a bad marriage. So why does the gospel give us a framework? A couple of reasons, six of them, in fact. One is the gospel tells us that there's something more important than us. The gospel begins with, there is a God, and he is pure, and he is holy, and he is more important than you. That you owe God your life because he created you, he sustains you, and he's given you every good thing in your life. It starts there. That God exists, God created, and God loves. When we start there, we begin to then see that I actually pale in comparison. My behavior, my character, my lifestyle actually pales in comparison to God's. And when the more we see God, the more sin we see in our own lives. The more we see how far we fall short. The more we love God, the more we know God, the greater that gap begins to be. Where we realize all of our shortcomings. And when we can identify sin in our own lives and the responsibility that comes as a result of that sin in our own lives, we then can take steps down the road towards reconciliation. Okay? So once we understand that, that God exists and we see ourselves in light of God, which is to say we see ourselves as more sinful than we ever imagined, but more loved than we could ever dream, we then have a mechanism for repentance, Scriptures tell us that if we own our sin, if we go to God, repent of our sin, acknowledge that we have committed um, an act of treason against God, we have sinned against ourselves, we have sinned against the people in in our lives, we know that God promises to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to cleanse us from our past to cleanse us from our sin, that there is a mechanism of I own it, I'm responsible for it, I repent of it, God makes it clean. Okay. Number four, we experience grace and mercy, two different things. Second Peter 1 tells us that when we are saved, God gives us the grace through the gospel, we have the grace to pursue righteousness. We have been given the keys to everything that has to do with life and righteousness. We have the ability, by God's grace, as saved people, to embrace God's vision for sexuality specifically, but embrace God's vision for our lives. He has given us the grace to be able to do that. So we don't have to white-knuckle it. We don't have to try our hardest. We don't have to be the most disciplined. We have to be the most humbled by God's grace. And then there is mercy when we fail. And we will fail. And there is mercy. We fail in light of that holy God. We see the sin in our own lives. We repent and ask God for forgiveness. And he brings mercy. 
fifth, we have an example of a holy life. We have Jesus. A a man, and Garth mentioned this in his prayer, a, a man who lived, was tempted in every way, just as we were, but didn't sin. We can look at it, it's tangible. We can read the story of his life and go, okay, he faced um, people who were making false accusations against him. This is how he responded. I face false accusations in my marriage, or you face, you give false accusations in your marriage. We have a framework, we can see how to rightly respond in those situations. We have an example. And lastly, we have the Holy Spirit. When we are saved, God, sends the Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us, to convict us of sin, to give us discernment, to see the path as it lies before us, to be able to walk down that path. The Holy Spirit guides us, directs us, points us back towards Christ. Without the gospel as our framework, there will be no reconciliation. You don't want to believe the gospel? Fine. You want to pursue your own ends? Great. You want to live that that self-glorifying life? Fantastic. Just don't expect to have a good marriage emerge from it. C.S. Lewis, in in a letter that he wrote um, in 1952, said this. He says, when I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. When we can learn to love God more than we love the person in our lives, that we have this right order of things, that we understand God is most ultimate, everything else begins to fall into place. That's how we we can layer over the gospel into our lives and into our marriages and experience real reconciliation. There will be fights. There will be animosity. There will be conflict. The question is, how do we respond to that conflict? How do we seek reconciliation? The gospel gives us the framework to do that. Let's pray. Jesus, we're thankful for all that you have done in our lives. Thank you for passages like this that we can so easily relate to. We can so easily see ourselves in these situations. God, I pray for uh, the married couples at Praxis, not just here, but at all the services, Lord, that, um, that the gospel would truly be at the center of their relationships, that conflict would be handled in a mature and a godly fashion, that husbands would lead the charge towards reconciliation. That they would not leave it up to their wives. They would not place the burden that you have given to us onto their wives. But I pray that the young men who are single would begin even now to prepare themselves by understanding the gospel. They would let it hone their character change their hearts and their minds. Lord, I I pray for our church, Lord, that, that our marriages would be strong, that our men would be humble, that our women would be loving. Protect us, Lord. 
In your name we pray. Amen.